Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports JADC2 podcast sponsored by L3 Harris. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today is Brian Clark, a retired U.S. Navy commander and submariner who is the director of the Center for Defense Concepts and Technology at the Hudson Institute Think Tank. Uh, he is one of the nation's leading thinkers about joint all-domain command and control, as well as uh, broader national, as well as naval, as well as technological strategy. Brian, it's always an honor and pleasure having you back on the podcast. Thanks, Vago. It's great to be here. Indeed. Thanks so much for joining us. And before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And GM Defense sponsors our uh, technology uh, coverage. Uh, Brian, uh, again, wonderful to have you on. Uh, Todd Harrison of the Center for Strategic and International Studies joined us last month. Uh, for a latest uh, of uh, for the latest on his series of pieces on JADC2 uh, that remains the Pentagon's uh, top modernization priority. And obviously, you've been writing a lot about that as well, uh, given that this capability really can be at the heart of not just technology, but strategy, interoperability, cloud combat, right? I mean, ultimately, it is right. a cloud combat uh, system. Uh, the new administration is rethinking elements of the plan, as as we heard from uh, Air Force Secretary Frank uh, Kendall and Q Highnote during our um, uh, JADC2 report coming out of the Air Force Association's annual uh, conference. Um, Secretary Kendall has asked, right, what's the problem we're trying to solve? And I know that he and uh, Secretary Del Toro uh, are, are close and, and that the Pentagon itself is taking a minute to step back and, and to reconsider. You watch the Navy closely. Um, where is the Navy in terms of how it's thinking through its version of JADC2, which is Project Overmatch? Uh, yeah, Vago. So you're seeing the Navy go through a lot of the same growing pains, if you will, that the rest of the joint forces uh, with regard to JADC2. So uh, what's happened in JADC2 is this uh, transition from something that was originally envisioned as a very generalized um, command and control and communications architecture, kind of a military internet of things, or you know, a net-centric warfare type of approach where we connect everything to everything, right? Um, that that spawned a bureaucratic effort uh, under JADC2 to uh, develop out a whole set of communications, you know, interoperability uh, systems as well as communication networks. Um, and then there's this whole effort inside the Pentagon with task forces trying to develop out this very generalized approach to make every sensor capable of talking to every shooter and every command and control node. Uh, the Navy mounted a similar kind of effort uh, focusing on their three main um, networks. So Link 16, uh, cooperative Engagement Capability, or CEC, uh, and TTNT. Um, the, they've got a, a, some other networks, but those are the three main ones that the Navy's tended to rely on. Um, that approach, that, that kind of top-down bureaucratic approach to make a very generalized command and control uh, architecture is faltering, right? Because it's, you know, it's too big, it's, gonna, it's starting to fail of its own weight. The bureaucracy that is trying to push this through, like all bureaucracies, is tending to focus more on its own uh, its own sustainment rather than trying to actually deliver capabilities to the warfighter. So separately, the services have all mounted these uh, experimentation exercises, experimentation efforts. So project overmatch for the Navy, project convergence for the Army. And those bottom-up efforts are actually yielding much better results or much more output that is useful for operators in the field. Um, so these bottom-up efforts are becoming maybe the focus of JADC2 now, even though there's this whole right. you know, bureaucratic organization in the Pentagon that continues to churn along. Um, so the Navy's Project Overmatch experiments have focused on, um, as Frank Kendall said, 
specific operational problems. What are specific effects chains that I'm, I'm going to need to be able to assemble in theater um, to deal with things that Indopaycom is concerned about? Um, you know, do I, do I need the ability to be able to pass a target uh, quality track from a satellite to a ship that then launches a missile like an SM-6, and that SM-6 needs to be able to get redirected or updated in flight by perhaps an unmanned vehicle, like an unmanned surface vehicle or an unmanned air vehicle. That effects chain is one of the ones that they've been you know, experimenting with through Project Overmatch. Um, so this bottom-up approach of, of assembling you know, different formulations, different compositions of forces is how the Navy has been going after JADC2 for the most part, uh, even while back in the Pentagon, there's a lot of meetings and PowerPoint being thrown around. Um, it, how is uh, the Navy uh, doing from your perspective on this, right? Um, there, depending on who you talk to, uh, there is there is a concern. Uh, I mean, even though I think uh, Lieutenant General Pugh Highnote, again, when we talked to him uh, at AFA, was very complimentary of the work that the Navy was doing. Indeed, he was complimentary of each of the services and what everybody was bringing to the party. Um, you know, there there is a little bit of a concern. There is there is a perception that the Air Force is a little bit more. Uh, developed in its planning and its thinking, or maybe a little bit more mature might be another way of putting it. Um, on, on the other hand, there, there are those who, you know, sometimes express concern that the Navy's plans may not be as well uh, baked. Uh, obviously, the Air Force and the Army are working close, more closely together. Uh, the Navy, a little bit outside the agreement between the two services. I mean, how do mm -hmm. you you know, I, I feel like there's a little bit of uh, Groundhog Day in this in this conversation. Right. But I mean, how would you characterize where the Navy is uh, right now in, in terms of its, its, its thinking and how the service continues to refine uh, its, its approach? Yeah, so th that's a great question. So the Navy uh, has been successful, as Q High note noted, uh, in the in the experiments that they have done, the demonstrations they have done have been successful, and they've actually assembled you know different effects chains that use components that are not usually ones that work together. Um, but they've sort of established some you know so interoperability you know uh, demonstrations. Uh, but what they don't have is this is the kind of comprehensive campaign plan, if you will, like the the Air Force does. So the Air Force has this. You know, battle rhythm, uh, and even uh, the Army does too with Project Convergence of, okay, we're going to march through, here's the campaign plan, here are the different um, force compositions, different instantiations of a force package that we're going to try to combine and work through so that we can eventually build up this menu essentially of choices. So this set of options that you can offer to a, an operational commander to say, well, these things will work with these other things or these things will work with everything. Um, the Navy doesn't have that same campaign plan, that same organized approach to putting together the different force compositions it might need to offer to an Indopaycom. Um, part of that is because the Navy has been slow to field some of the systems that would be components of those future effects chains. So for example, the Air Force has been putting out, you know, they've got the Skyborg program. They've actually fielded some real UAVs as part of Skyborg. Um, they've got the Golden Horde program, which is a bunch of smaller UAVs that get launched from larger platforms. Um, they, the Army has, of course, a plethora of unmanned vehicles on the ground and in the air. So the other services have a lot of nodes that can be part of these uh, force compositions. The Navy has been slow to do that, right? They've been slow to get unmanned vehicles 
um, onto the flight deck of the carrier. They've been slow to get unmanned surface vehicles out to the fleet. So that's part of what's holding the Navy up is a lack of diversity in the force that allows them to be able to create these different force compositions. Uh, and then the other part is a, um, they just haven't formulated these plans. So they, they, they took that sort of top-down approach. And now as they shift to more of a bottom-up approach, they need to have a, a plan put together for how the, in this case, NAVWAR is gonna be able to lead this effort. Um, and what does the Navy, in your, from your perspective, need to start doing if it wants to catch up with where the other services are, right? I mean, the undersea right. community, your community, um, has been extraordinarily proactive uh, with unmanned capabilities for uh, some time, uh, both remotely operated as well as unmanned. Whereas the rest of the force has been much more reluctant to embrace it. You know, even though naval aviation, um, I, I think people have a tendency of forgetting, right? That the X-47 was just an extraordinary right. capability right. That, that very clearly demonstrated that this kind of capability can operate off a carrier tech. Right. I mean, the key is going to be to push out versions of the unmanned systems they have available to them or that from are there from or are from other services as quickly as possible to work inside these demonstrations so that you can have more force compositions, more of a diversity, more nodes that you can start to plug and play. You know, essentially these are kind of like plug fests like you might do if you were a tech company. Um, the, and there, there's a way to do that. So you know, the, the Marine Corps recently you know, did some uh, experimentation with the XQ-58, right? The, the, um, the Kratos UAV that's gonna be part of Skyborg, this rocket assist launch. Um, we could get some of those out there for the Marine Corps to use. Um, the MQ-25, there are a couple of test articles. You could send those out there or you could build a surrogate you know, and have the surrogate go out there and pretend to be the MQ-25. Uh, MQ-9s that the Marine Corps are buying, those are available. They could be fielded out there. Uh, and then unmanned surface vehicles, the Navy already has a couple of them. So instead of making this uh, an unmanned you know, battle problem like they did, which was a very successful effort, start to integrate these unmanned systems, even if they are at a very prototype stage, out to allow them to be the nodes for doing project overmatch experimentation. Um, and the Navy has been slow to do that. Um, and then part of what the Navy also needs to do is start to identify the re reference missions, the design missions for these unmanned platforms to say, this is the vision that this thing's designed for. Once it does that, we can move on to other things. MQ-25 is pretty successful at that by saying it's going to be a tanker, build it to be a tanker, and then we'll figure out what else we can do after that because it helps provide that urgency to get it to the fleet. So that's really the, I mean, to me, that's the, the big stumbling block right now is the lack of the of diversity in the force that allows you to really do something interesting from an experimentation standpoint. Um, I, I should uh, also have pointed out, right? I mean, the Navy's experience goes uh, back uh, decades, right? I mean, the battleships right. were using pioneers, yeah. for example, really uh, pioneering uh, right. the the integration of uh, over the horizon fires, um, and and uh, the Navy obviously is using the Triton uh, by uh, Northrop right. Grumman, obviously, which is one of our uh, sponsors, right? I mean, so the Navy's yes. got a lot of experience with this capability uh, in in all domains. Uh, ultimately, right. um, if if it if it wanted to tap uh, some of them a little bit more quickly, right? I mean, I think there's a right. little bit of a risk aversion there uh, oh, as yeah. well. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, you don't want you, yeah. Go ahead. But what, what but I was going to ask you, right? I mean, what does what does a services and and I want to I don't, I don't want to necessarily get uh, focused on this, right? But at the end, the the entire notion of JADC two is a cloud combat system, right? It is a secure, right? So it's about the data, uh, how you move the data, and how you allow people to access that data, and ideally. Once you get that resolved, then actually allies and partners can play in this space as well, right? Um, right. And then, oh, by the way, there's a 5G capability uh, right. component to this as well. Talk to us a little bit about 
the visual, how do people need to be visualizing this? And are people paying as much attention to the data part as they need to? Because ultimately, it's a cloud network. It's a secure cloud network. Right. Um, that's a that's a very good point. So the um, to step back just a little bit. So one thing, uh, Dan, Dan, Pat and I, uh, my colleague at Hudson are working on a paper right now on JADC2 as part of our work for DARPA. Uh, and in that paper, one of the things we realized in our conversations with the services and with Indopaycom was uh, JADC2 is much more about joint integration, um, you know, at, at a, you know, very broadly defined, you know, than it is um, about a specific network technology. And, and what I mean by that is um, right now, when we deploy forces to the theater, they're deployed by the services and then the COCOM has to integrate them. So Indopaycom has to figure out how to integrate Navy stuff with Army stuff with Air Force stuff when they actually do the mission. That's not integrated anywhere before it gets to the COCOM, which is sort of puts a lot of burden on them. So what JADC2 is really trying to do is it help COCOMs integrate joint forces in theater when they arrive and allows them to have more diversity in some of the force compositions that they can put together, right? They don't need, because if you get a carrier strike group, it always disaggregates. And then you start mixing and matching forces in theater. We need the ability for those new compositions of forces to be able to talk to each other and work with each other. And so to your point, um, that makes it much more about data and about you know what is the data that they're all sharing than it is about what specific waveform they sent it on or what you know message format it came in. Um, so yeah, absolutely, it's about that. So if we reframe you know JADC two as joint integration uh, rather than simply you know command and control or or communications, that kind of opens up the aperture to say this is really about getting data into a cloud, and that cloud is obviously hosted on a lot of different platforms, um, and then have that data be able to be shared and then uh, employed by the other forces that are part of that you know, little battle network. Um, and the other part of it is you know thinking about um, the. Um, the, the command control or the decision support, if you will. So the, the, you know, it's not just having the data there in the cloud, but it's also having the decision support system that helps you take that data and formulate you know, courses of action, you know, build out some tactics and then go employ those. Because right now that is something that the operational commander has to do with a planning staff you know, and PowerPoint and crayons. It's not you know, something that's able to be done uh, automatically, which um, if you, you know, it'd be like you know, calling up an Uber and having to do the route planning for your Uber yourself on, your, you know, on a notepad. Uh, that's how we do planning in the, in the military right now for joint forces. Um, which, which, is, uh, which, which really is extraordinary. Um, when you, when you, when you think about it, right. I mean, people see these movies where there's sort of seamless integration and, and really ultimately it's grease pencils and fat fingering it, which, which I just think is just, uh, and obviously something <laughs> that JADC2, uh, is, right. is trying to get to the heart of, um, one of the questions I've got for you, Brian, is, you know, you, you've got uh, a great ability to sort of connect, uh, the, the technological, the systems, uh, to the strategy. And we're at a period now where, New administration is working in national security and national defense uh, strategies. We have the Global Force Posture Review that was uh, discussed publicly by Dr. Mara Carlin. Um, Obviously, the document itself uh, has not been released and remains uh, classified. We obviously have an Indo-Pacific strategy that's in the works, uh, as well as a cyber strategy and a nuclear posture review uh, as well. From from your perspective, how does JADC2 tie into all of these strategies if it's so central uh, if it's going to be so central and enabler uh yeah so that's a really it's a really interesting point and because there is a connection um so jadc2 uh if we think of it as um, a a a process for joint integration or a methodology for joint integration, you know, an architecture for joint integration. 
um, then it's then it's supposed to be empowering the ability to create different force compositions than your standard carrier strike group, you know, uh, brigade combat team, new, et cetera, right? We're gonna be able to create lots of new ways of combining the joint force in the field. Um, what that does when you look at the national defense strategy is it enables some of the, the pillars that the, of the national defense strategy that are starting to come into view. So, you know, it's gonna integrate deterrence is gonna involve you know, the use of obviously alliances and diplomatic and economic relationships to, you know, make, make conflict less, you know, less palatable, <laughs> create the you know, lower the cost, lower, the, increase the cost, lower the benefits. Um, but then there's also this need for resilience and there's this need for defense. So we need to be able to defend against initial attacks, resilience to fight through them. Those are pillars of the strategy we're likely to see. Um, and to be able to be re resilient in the face of, you know, a fait accompli attempt by China, you've got to be able to kind of reconfigure your forces. You've got to be able to adapt. You've got to be able to present challenges for the Chinese to worry about as well as you know, protect yourself. JADC2 is fundamental to that. If you only can you know, compose your forces in the same compositions that they trained in at the National Training Center or that they did in COP2X, well, then the Chinese are going to figure that out and they're going to clean your clock. Uh, but you've got to have this ability to recompose, adapt, and keep fighting. Um, Marines would be, have been doing this for you know two centuries. Uh, the rest of the force needs to figure out how to do it at the joint level. And JADC2 is the, the set of technologies and processes that are, are intended to enable us to do that. So if you don't have JADC2, you don't have that resilience, you maybe don't have that defense. So it takes away a couple of the key pillars of the, of the national defense strategy. Um, and one thing, I'll, one thing I'll know, you mentioned 5G earlier. Your 5G, um, it could be one of the kind of uh, foundational elements of JADC2 in the future. Um, 5G is not just a communications technology uh, approach. It's actually an approach to uh, electromagnetic spectrum operations. And so you could use 5G architectures, you know, military version of them, to, to allow you to do jamming, communications, sensing, both passive and active, and manage that those operations with the same set of arrays. So you could take the arrays that are currently on a bunch of unmanned vehicles, make those 5G apertures and manage them using a 5G architecture um, and leverage a lot of the commercial investment that's being made in that hardware and software. So we're already looking at uh, instantiations of 5G that support JADC2. Um, how, uh, let me let me ask you, right, I mean, we have the Global Force Posture uh, Review, obviously, you know, it's, it's good news, uh, the president apparently accepted it. Uh, on the other hand, we really don't know the the, the details uh, uh, of it yet, because uh, again, the document hasn't been released. But right. from, from your standpoint, how does JADC2 yeah. fit into making better use of the forces that you ultimately have, right? I mean, do you, does it allow you to cover more ground with less troops, uh, you know, how, how does this change the equation from, from right. your perspective? So it, so it's, I think it does it in two ways. In one way, like you said, it, it might allow you to get more out of the same or fewer forces uh, because what it would allow you to do is um, connect together uh, a group of forces and, and execute effects chains among forces that are uh, distributed or dispersed. Um, you can get, you know, relatively distributed forces to be able to have you know, the effect, ability to mass effects in the same way that a less distributed force would have to be used for today. Um, so you could, you know, as the force transitions, you're already seeing all the services are becoming more distributed uh, based on their force structure plans. That more distributed force, you know, might be able to deliver similar effects um, because JADC2 will allow them to mass those. Also, you know, by being more distributed, more diverse, 
um, and allowing those diverse force combinations to be created, um, it would allow that that just distributed force that's maybe a little bit thinner than what we have today in a region to be as resilient as the force that it would replace. So in places where you know economy of force theaters like the Middle East or Africa, for example, might be able to generate you know, comparable effects to what they can do today with more concentrated forces with a thinner force structure, thanks to JADC2. And then, in, and I think when it comes to the priority theaters like Europe and, and Asia Pacific or Indo-Asia, Indo-Pacific Command, you're gonna have the ability to um, have forces fall in so that part of the, the posture view appears to center on this idea of force flows and we're gonna shift forces back and forth as demand increases and, and falls. So uh, a little bit of that you know, surge uh, idea that we've had in previous strategies uh, back from the 90s. Uh, but JADC2 would allow you to have those forces fall in and present you know, an adversary like China with you know, changing or dynamic force compositions that they may not have planned against. Um, that you know maybe aren't as you know necessarily as as uh, lethal as the you know force packages of today, but they're going to be ones that are going to surprise the Chinese or be un- unanticipated. Um, so having that ability to shift forces in and to to flow forces into a theater, you know that where they didn't have a large posture to start with, you know might present a bigger challenge to the Chinese. So JADC2 is 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 an enabler for the posture review, at least as they've described it in the unclassified reporting. Um, you know, you, you mentioned uh, posture, uh, and so uh, it leads me to a very Navy-specific uh, question, uh, and then I want to talk and wrap this up in a minute about how we speed everything up and the kind of investments that we're missing that we have to make. Uh, now, Bob Work, former uh, Deputy Defense Secretary and, and First Order Navalist, uh, former number two uh, civilian uh, in the United States Navy for a long time, and, and, uh, and somebody with, with tremendous strategic chops. Bob wrote in uh, proceedings, I should point out, he's also chairman of the Naval uh, Institute, so it makes it easier yeah. <laughs> for him to write for the publication. Uh, way to go, Bob. Um, but he, he made a very, very a powerful argument that, you know, the Navy is always focused on numbers, right? Bob has been one of the people who's who has sort of argued against numbers for numbers sake. He has talked about culture change and also how to use the Navy differently. And that in the interwar period, we were practicing pretty intensively on on for the big game, right? As opposed to being present to be present, whereas we've become addicted to being present to be present. And it's not particularly clear that any that that some of the ships that we want to put forward are really going to move a worry needle for the Chinese, right? I mean, if you send an LCS out there, I'm not sure from a capability standpoint, they go, ooh, uh, you know, <laughs> we've, we've, we've got, uh, a, you know, a, a, an aluminum trimaran uh, roaming around here, right? I mean, if it doesn't have much reach or an ability to defend itself, it's it's not particularly uh, needle moving. Ultimately, what do you make of his argument? Because his point is that combatant command requests for naval capability actually should be washed through the joint staff and we have to be a lot more judicious in how we do this. What, what do you think of that argument and how JADC can actually help the Navy better right. manage its its resources than maybe it's managing them now, right? Because right now the yep. Navy is killing itself trying to satisfy endless demands from combatant commanders that are just pulling a lever and there are just an X number of chiclets in that dispenser, not to mix a metaphor. <laughs> yeah, so I, I guess I would say there's three things I would, I would bring up. So um, you, one is um, you know, uh, the posture or the, the the posture request, the presence request from the COCOMs always exceed what's available. Um, I don't think washing those to the joint staff necessarily is the right solution because I think the joint staff in a lot of ways has not made itself a useful value added to the 
you know, process of force planning or force management. It's made itself as a intermediary when in fact, you probably need to get the customer, which is the COCOM and the supplier, which are the services, more closely integrated. Because um, I think one of the problems we have today is that places, you know, Indopaycom, for example, has operational challenges that he is trying to address. Um, and he's trying, he's trying to get the joint staff to act as his broker, and they're not doing a great job of that. They need, you, know, you need to maybe more tightly integrate the COCOMs with the services, maybe even think about having you know, the COCOMs aligned with services to say, okay, service Navy, your customer is Indopaycom. You, know, you need to be thinking primarily about your customer and making sure that your customer is getting what they need. Uh, because with the way technology is developing, we can't wait. Um, you know, we're not waiting 20 years for new technology, new capability to be developed. We are doing that in, in quick turn fashion in almost a DevOps fashion in some of these places like rapid capabilities offices, software factories, et cetera. Um, so JADC2 would be the second part of this, enables you to do that kind of DevOps approach to force you know, management. So you can you know, work with Indopaycom and say, hey, Indopaycom says, one challenge I have is I've got to be able to get submarines into the, into the Taiwan Strait, or at least take out ships in Taiwan Strait in the event of an invasion, but it could be mined on either end. So how am I going to do that? Well, Navy, you're my primary supplier. Help me figure this problem out. And that might involve combining multiple forces that you know, don't normally play together. Um, JADC2 is a mechanism to help provide that integration of that new joint force package that'll be necessary to support that operational problem. Um, so, and then to, to Bob's point about presence, um, I think that gets back to this customer supplier relationship. You know, your customer, you know, it probably can say, well, yeah, I would love to have presence out here because I got a lot of things to do and I want to show the flag, but you know, I understand your problem supplier, you know, what can you give me? And let's think about managing this so that we think about having things that are appropriate for the gray zone fight that might be happening today um, out here more of the time. Um, hopefully those are cheaper to operate. Unfortunately, LCS doesn't fit that bill, but we need something cheaper that can operate out there day to day. And then the bigger stuff that I need for the big fight maybe comes out here more periodically because I don't need it here all the time, but I don't want to make it seem like it's never coming. Um, I've got to have it out and about. It's got to be able to do the exercises and training necessary for the big war. Um, Navy, can you, you know, this is something that Brian McGrath and I proposed, you know, in our fleet architecture study was this maneuver force idea where we take the carriers and, put, and the carrier strike groups and put those into a maneuver force that is not actually a presence force. That is in fact a force that's preparing for the big fight and then periodically makes its way into the, the priority theaters. Um, so I guess that, that, that would be the third point is this idea that we need to move away from a, a single model of presence to instead think about our presence forces or our deterrence forces at forward as being something that's affordable to sustain, useful in engaging with allies and partners, you know, but it's not necessarily the big war force that is going to be expensive and, you know, we burn up a bunch of ship years uh, sustaining it you know, on, in theater or in the field. But instead, we keep that force, you know, in a, in a training status where we're preparing for the big fight. And JADC2, again, is helping you with that because that's, that JADC2 is going, to, is going to what's enabled me to have my maneuver force fall in on my presence forces that are up forward and actually, you know, put together some force packages that would be useful against an opponent like China. Uh, let me, uh, you, you uh, mentioned, you, you channeled your former boss there uh, for a second. So I'm going to give a shout out to Admiral John Greenert, right? Uh, where yep. uh, toward the end of his tenure, he, he was talking about uh, very much a, it's a, it's a nuclear uh, submariner's way of looking at the world, right? Effective full power hours and how much gas I've got in the tank, because people have a tendency of thinking of nuclear reactors as endless power and they're, they're right. not, but also how you husband those ship years to make sure that 
you're expending them in the best way possible, right? We've been burning through ship life uh, in a very indiscriminate fashion. And we're realizing now that the maintenance side of it is, is really what's, what's the killer. And we don't even have the capacity to, to support that which we, we're wearing out or, or be able to replace it quickly enough. Let me ask you uh, an intermediate question, right? I want to get to the speed and the investment necessary. And I, I'm very cognizant about that we don't have a lot of time. When we talk about the importance of exercising and practicing for the big game, the problem is once upon a time, we could, we could do these exercises. And unless there was an overhead Soviet asset or somebody lurking around an AGI or something, um, we, we could actually exercise and, and be out of sight and out of mind a little bit. Whereas now there is an omnipresent surveillance that we're subjected to through cyberspace, through the electromagnetic spectrum. Does JADC2 need to have a greater synthetic distributed um, experimentation feature to it so that we can actually game and practice stuff away from prying eyes especially if we're going to do the kind of combined on the fly. You know what I mean? The same characteristics you need for operational yeah. control are exactly the characteristics you will need for, for, for synthetic training and, and high intensity yeah. uh, planning. If, yeah, if you absolutely. Want to I, right. So live virtual constructive, you know, uh, training where we would have maybe a live unit, but that live unit is, uh, getting all of its data feeds from a, a synthetic source, you know, a virtual or constructive source. So you could be out on your ship um, off, you know, in the East Pack, um, participating in an exercise, but in reality, nobody else is around. You're just driving around. So from the external, you know, from the, the Chinese overhead point of view, you're just doing maneuvers. Um, but in reality, you might be fighting that fight against the Chinese thanks to your connection to a, a series of assets that are not located with you. Um, so, uh, LV JADC2 could enable uh, you know that level of LVC because it would allow you to uh, make those make those force pot, force pieces interoperable. Um, so the airplanes you're dealing with could be you know doing something in Fallon. The satellites you're operating with might be doing their normal orbit, but not really revealing themselves to be doing anything different. And the UUVs you might be using for that 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 force package are maybe driving around it off Keyport in the Puget Sound. So you could be pulling all those together and using the normal communication links you would normally use with them. Uh, you're just now doing it in a distributed fashion without everybody being in one place and revealing the, the tactics you're likely to employ. So JADC2 does create this whole idea for live virtual and constructive approaches that are different than what we've used in the past, which is you know, everybody gets in a simulator and we just pretend, um, or you have to bring everybody out there and we may just introduce some constructive contacts like we do at you know, Northern Edge. Um, it, we, we'd be able to actually do this as a, as a full-up uh, scenario it, with everybody in completely different locations. Um, let me ask uh, one last uh, question. How do we accelerate this? Because honestly, we've been talking about this for longer than World War II went on, uh, right? At, the, at this point, I always like to use that as a reminder and a measure that you can do actually big things in a short period of time. Uh, you know, and what are the specific investments we need in order to be able to realize this capability more quickly than, than not? Because there still appears to be it, it, you know, we say it's our priority, but it does not appear to be moving with the kind of urgency that um, I, I believe, and I think you believe, and a number of others believe, um, we're moving at. 
Yeah, so uh, it, which is interesting, you know, Govini did that analysis on investments for C4ISR that was kind of related to JADC2, and they found, you know, less than 1% of the budget or about 1% of the budget goes towards C4ISR, and that there's no upward trend there, despite all this emphasis on uh, JADC2, um, which, you know, the, the money on JADC2 is going to end up getting spent on, you know, interoperability tools, which is you know, software mostly, and then and then communications. But I guess what I would say is that where the big investment needs to be is in um, software. Um, as you noted, you know, this is a lot about you know data and the cloud, um, and a lot of what our interoperability is going to need to come from. So if I want to talk from Link 16 to TTNT or you know Mattel to Link 16, um, a lot of what we could do to make that happen is writing the software uh, tools, the tool chains that allow you to translate from one to the other. Um, as opposed to trying to you know, build gateways where one radio is you know, bolted to another radio, which is about the most primitive way you can do that. Right. Um, you know, we can use software um, to make it so that these different radios can talk to each other in the near term and then eventually move towards more of a 5G architecture where you know, everything can you know, is, is communicating in ones and zeros. So it doesn't matter what radio you use because it, it quickly turns into ones and zeros. So um, we need to be focusing on software development. And that's what a lot of these, so project overmatch, project convergence, um, those experiments, a lot of what's happening is kids are sitting, out, sitting at, a, at a type, as a keyboard, typing out software to patch and, and put, put together different communication networks that don't normally talk to each other or uh, translate what's coming out of a radio into the form that a particular platform needs to act on, um, and then be able to knit that together with the decision support tool that is supposed to pull them all together and give the commander some actionable recommendations. That's all software writing. So I would say um, that's where the fundamental investment needs to be get made is in software. And um, there's been some efforts to make you know, appropriations available so we can actually buy software in a DevOps kind of way, as opposed to as a, like a product. Our, our, you know, that's new. Uh, up until last year, to buy software in the military, you, you essentially were buying it the same way we bought, you know, Office, you know, I guess Microsoft, you know, Office back in the 90s, where you bought a disk. Um, we're now buying software as a, as a you know, service. And that's what the, the military needs to do to be able to empower JADC2. That's the most important investment probably they need to make. Ryan, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so very much for joining us. Uh, terrific conversation as, as always, and already looking forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Fog. It was great to be here. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.